Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 25, Homer's Iliad, book 7. Last time we talked about book 6 and Hector returning to Troy to make sacrifice to Athena. Athena, of course, turned her head from that because Athena is supporting the Achaeans, not the Trojans. He met three the three women whom love him, or who love him, excuse me, subject. Um, Hecuba, his mother. Helen, the wife of his brother, Paris and Andromache, and they, each one of them offered some particular temptation uh, to keep him there and to keep him from returning to the fight, to keep him from his duty, um, by even come offering him conflicting duties, like duty to family, as Andromache um, offers to Hector. So he, he endures a difficult time. One thing I misspoke on is I said that that was the last time that Hector would have an opportunity to return to Troy. It may be the last time it's mentioned that he goes back to Troy, but in Book 7, as we'll discuss today, clearly he would have had opportunity to be in a council where his brother Antenor and Priam will speak up, um, and also the, the Herald of Dias will be involved. So, so most likely he would have been at that council, and so he does have an opportunity to return to Troy. So that was a mistake in the last podcast, so let's correct that. So... Hector and Paris return to the battlefield, and each man has an opportunity to kill his man. They're motivated. They're feeling good. They're restored. They, they have not been unmanned by their time in the city. They're still tough. Excellent. Well, after that happens, Athena has the opportunity to come back from Olympus down to the battlefield, and where, she, where Apollo, coming down from Pergamos, meets her beneath the oak tree of Zeus, their father. So it's a, it's a neutral point, a, pl- a place in which they can talk and um, be at peace with each other, to negotiate, one might say, a safe space, a neutral space, a neutral ground. There we are. And so, first Apollo addresses Athena and says, what is it that you're hoping to accomplish by coming to see me? Why don't we stop the fighting for the day with a one-on-one combat? I'll summon Hector, as he's the greatest of the Trojan warriors. And so Athena says, that is precisely why she came down to see Apollo. And so she says, yes, let us set that up perfectly. And so recall this or notice this. Even though this will be a one-on-one combat like that between Paris and Menelaus, it's not for the same stakes. The stakes here are just in the combat for the day to spare some bloodshed because there's been enough that's happened today. Not um, for Helen or, or all the possessions that she stole from Menelaus in coming to Troy. So this is more of a pride fight, one might say. And so the fact that Hector's going to be fighting is something we're very excited about because he's the chief of the Trojans and he strikes fear even into Achilleus, it is said, by Agamemnon to Menelaus in this book. So we very much want to see what he's got. And we want to see him against a very strong Achaean, so we'll have to see what happens there. So Helenus, the prophet brother of Hector, he interprets these signs. Apparently he has seen the conversation between Apollo and Athena, perhaps within his mind's eye, perhaps he imagined it, perhaps a prophet can, through his imagination, or interpret what his imagination perceives in the reality around him, and then portrays to him in images. And so that seems to be what a prophet can do. And so Helena says that he's just seen Apollo and Athena, and that their will is for Hector to fight. So Hector, placing his hand in the middle of his spear in a universal symbol of peace, uh, not pointing the spear at himself, or at any, or at the the enemy indicates a peaceful maneuver that they are balanced, um, <clears throat> and so 
Hector has all his men sit down too. Agamemnon does the same and Hector calls out a challenge. He'll challenge and fight any one of the great Achaeans. And in fact, his challenge is so powerful at first that all the men are stricken to silence. It's an anomalous moment. What, what is somebody going to say to somebody who's being that confident? Very difficult. And so the men are stricken to silence, but Menelaus and his disgust is prepared to stand up and fight himself. However, it's universally known, apparently, that Hector is much stronger, stronger than Menelaus. Or Agamemnon is a very overprotective big brother. Hard to say particularly which uh, one it is. But, in any case, Agamemnon encourages his brother not to fight. He says, no, you will die. Actually, I can, I can, I can directly address that because the text suggests that Menelaus would have gone straight down to his death had he fought against Hector. Um, in fact, it says it right here on line 103. So he spoke and began to put on his splendid armor, and there, O Menelaus, would have shown forth the end of your life under the hands of Hector, since he was far stronger than you were, had not the kings of the Achaeans left up and caught you. So it is both universally known and, and a fact that Menelaus is not as strong as Hector. So Agamemnon has him sit back down. Nestor then observing what he perceives as cowardice within the ranks of the Achaeans gives them a rousing speech. First and foremost, he tells a story about Peleus, the father of Achilleus, and how if he were to see these men cowering in fear right now, that he would be so disheartened in de uh, at, at the dishonor they're bringing on themselves that he could barely stand it. The next thing he mentions is that if he were younger, he would have jumped at this opportunity immediately, because even when he was the youngest of men, the tallest and strongest of a man who stood against his own men, the Pileans, um, uh, he was an Arcadian named Eruthalion, and Eruthalion fought against Nestor, and Nestor defeated him, even though he was a young man. And so, even now the bravest of the Achaeans are not minded with a good will to go against Hector, says Nestor. And Hector is far less fearsome than Eruthalion, and these men are far more powerful than a young Nestor is. And so, after that scolding, nine men stand up immediately. Agamemnon first, then the son of Tydeus, Diomedes, as he's improving more and more. Then the two Iontes, then Edomidius, then Marianes, a match for the murderous lord of battles. Then Eurypylus, the glorious son of Euimon, Thoas, and Drymon's son, and also brilliant Odysseus, and all were willing to fight. And so how were they going to decide between these men? Well, they would let the gods, gods decide. And how do the gods decide? Well, in the same way they decide for us now, in a game of chance. So each man takes a stone and puts a marking on the stone, like uh, just a small, unique marking, like a signature, but not as sophisticated. And they put these into a helmet. They then shake the helmet, and out jumps one of the stones first. And as they shake the helmet, all the men of the Achaeans pray for th one of three men to pop out. Aias the Greater, Diomedes, son of Tydeus, or Agamemnon. What does this mean? Well, this clearly means that those are the three men that they think have the best chance of defeating Hector. And in fact, they get what they wish for because Aias the Greater is the one who pops out. So Aias then gives a rousing speech to the Achaeans, suggesting that no man will possibly push him backwards and that they are to pray, but to pray silently to Zeus, for no man is to see them um, lacking confidence on the field of battle. But Aias is extremely confident. We then have a scene of him arming. He wears armor except for on his chest, which he uses his large anachronistic shield to cover. It has seven leather folds of armor with an eighth 
bronze fold, which I would suggest. Um, as it is made of a different material, it, like the carbon on the top of the Washington Monument, like the eye above the pyramid on the back of the American $1 bill, suggested the top quality is made of something different from all other qualities beneath it, and that might be something like awareness. And that's why it's gold, because it's that which is divine. And that which is divine is awareness. Um, because it, that is what... a enables one to adapt to any possible situation, any anomalous situation. Because, of course, in an anomalous situation, tradition won't be enough. Because if the situation is new, then some sort of new action pattern needs to be implemented within it. And so this shield might well represent the Achaeans as they are against the Trojans. And, and by proxy, by extension rather, you might imagine Aias here to represent the superior Achaean forces and ethos and... Hector, the inferior Trojan um, character and ethos and strength of the people. And so this fight will be very illustrative. And in fact, it starts with Aias vaunting to Hector, speaking, speaking words of fierce terror to try and cow the heart of his opponent. And so even though he is so far more powerful and very difficult or terrifying in his taunting, Hector says that he's he's no boy, no ineffectual boy or woman, and he knows he he knows something of the works of warfare, and he knows how to fight and kill men in battle, and how to turn right and left, and how to move amongst the flying horses. So he says, "Your words will not turn my heart, Ias." And so we're going to have to go down one level of abstraction, and we're going to have to actually fight. And so they begin by throwing spears. Hector's spear throw characteristically goes through th six folds of Ias's shield, not even the seventh bron uh, leather one, and certainly not the eighth bronze one. Or rather, it does go through the bronze layer on the outside, and that's why it doesn't even get down to the seventh layer of leather. So the Achaeans, as a camp, are still doing very well. They're very well defended if we consider them, we consider Ias in the an extension of their character, a symbolic representation of them in this moment, that even though Hector was dead on target throwing at them, he was not strong enough to even pierce the shield of Aias. And we'll see that theme repeated during this battle, because now Aias throws, and his spear goes not only all the way through Hector's shield, but also all the way through his corslet, but also through his mantle, or rather tunic, his, his shirt, and then he pulls the same move that Paris of Troy pulled in book three against Menelaus. He turns to the side and somehow doesn't die, uh, even though he's knocked, he's knocked back. And so then what happens? Well, then they attempt to stab at each other, and the same pattern ensues. Hector attempts to stab at Aias, stabs his shield, and his blade is bent backwards, so breaks his spear. Point to Aias. Aias then stabs at Hector and grazes his neck, drawing blood, horror fills the Trojans. That's a real hit. That's damage to the champion. They've felt blood. There's, it's, that was near a killing blow, though it hit slightly. And so Hector retreats slightly, picks up a stone, throws it at Aias, hits his shield, does nothing, falls off. Aias then picks up a bigger stone than Hector, illustrating the superior force of him and the Achaean army. He hurls it at Hector. It bends his shield inward, and he falls to the ground, uh, stunned, but he's picked up 
by Apollo. And then the men draw their swords and like boars or lions, they're about to engage and fight each other. But the heralds of Dios and Talthybius from the Achaeans and the Trojans intervene in the middle and say, men, you are equally beloved by the gods right now. The dark is falling and we must follow the dictates of custom and stop the fight right now. And an exciting fight is ended right in that moment by Talthybius and Dios and their superior judgment. And so Ias and Hector exchange guest gifts saying that they will... Ias allows Hector, since he issued the challenge, to say what the conclusion of the battle is. And Hector says, don't worry, we'll meet again. And that's certainly true, they will. And Ias will perform just as well against Hector next time, if not better, um, when they do meet again on the battlefield. And Hector says, but let all know that even though we are enemies, we can give each other gifts of friendship, indicating that they are not simply savage boars or lions, but humans. Um, something else mentioned about the fact that they are not simply animals is this, that Hector made as part of the conditions for going into this battle, that if the man he fights should defeat him, he can strip his armor, but give his body back to his people so that they can bury it. And that indicates utter humanity because he also said he would extend the same courtesy to the other man. He would take his armor as a trophy from him, but he would not despoil his body, indicating some respect for the person he fights. And if he has some respect for the person he fights, well, that's a human virtue, not an animal one. And so there's some vestiges of humanity that remain within Hector, um, just as there are vestiges of humanity that remain with Ias, who makes an agreement with him. We will not see the same courtesy extended when Hector fights against Achilleus, suggesting that, well, he's not dealing with a human when he fights against him, but more a chaotic and primordial force of nature embodied in man, which will certainly be true when we look at it. And so Hector gives to Ias a sword with a sheath and a sword belt. And Ias gives a purple war belt to Hector. And so this makes perfect sense because what is it that Hector gives to Ias? He gives him a weapon because what is Ias doing? He and the Achaeans are attacking Troy. And what is it that Ias gives to Hector? He gives him a war belt. What is this a defensive piece that one wears? And what is it that Hector is defending? Well, something that is also circled by defense, a, a city, a walled city. Troy, and so these men indicate understanding of their particular roles and why they have to fight each other, and that they don't hate each other on a personal level, but simply understand that well, one is one is host and one is enemy, and or one is one is standing army and one is invader, and that they they have to play their roles because, as Shakespeare said, all the world's a, sa a stage, and these men seem to understand it. So we return to the Achaean council. Now it's night. Nestor, who's now speaking in council, which is a good sign for Agamemnon and a good sign for his growing leadership and a good sign for all the Achaeans because Nestor suggests wise courses of action. He suggests that they, the Achaeans make a request to the Trojans that they stop the fighting for a day in order to burn and bury their dead. But this isn't simply an intelligent request. He's also going to lace it with some cunning and some cleverness, which the gods will not be happy about, which I will explain. And so what he suggests is this, that while the Achaeans burn and bury their dead and cart them off in the next day, while the Trojans do, while they have an armistice called, that the Achaeans use this time dishonestly to build their own wall with a pit with stakes in front of it. And so under the, under the auspice of mutually cleaning the battlefield, they will bolster their defenses the next day. So essentially the Achaeans are going to offer a dishonest agreement 
to the Trojans. And in fact, they're going to promise, they're going to make this promise with the Trojans under the auspice of Zeus. And so when Poseidon approaches Zeus to mention this dishonesty, it will deeply trouble Zeus and it will lead to it will lead to the wall of the Achaeans not being as much as it could be and eventually being destroyed by Zeus, suggesting that those agreements made between men with dishonesty held between them, or rather, those agreements made dishonestly are agreements that eventually become corrupted and don't last in an eternal sort of way. So the walls of Troy will stand as long as they need to stand because they were made well, actually, something interesting to say, they will not last forever, and actually the walls of Troy were made uh, as part of a dishonest agreement too, and so perhaps we notice here that all walls made under the auspice of dishonest agreements end up falling sooner rather than later. They don't last nearly as long as they should, and so if one negotiates dishonestly with the, their humans, the game devolves. The trust disappears between them, and that's like the walls collapsing between them. And so Nestor makes this suggestion and the Achaeans all agree. They think this is wise. And so we shift then to the Trojans. They too, of course, mirroring the Achaeans, are having their own council. Except for the first point of business is one made by Antenor, the wisest Trojan, which is smart. He says, why don't we just give back Helen? Sounds like a wise point of view. Give Helen back in her possessions, the Achaeans will go away. That seems like a good idea, but who should speak up against him? Paris of Troy, of course. And Paris says, I absolutely will not give Helen back, but I will give back the possessions that came with her. So if we send a dais in the morning to go talk to the Achaeans, we could, we could offer them that. That's essentially a slap in the face to the Achaeans. It certainly will not work, especially after all this time they've been there. It would just be a symbolic loss to them. There's absolutely no way they're going to accept it. And so... Even though Priam steps up and agrees and puts his backing behind his son, he also adds in that the true agreement Adias will be sent to procure from the Achaeans is that the Trojans also want to clear their bodies and their dead because they they also had a lot of people die the day before. And in fact, when when they do make this agreement eventually, it will mention that at first they couldn't even recognize the bodies for who they were because of all the dirt and grime and blood on them, but that they clean them off and eventually can. And so though Paris, fool that he is, has another opportunity to help his people, it's perhaps the third one. The first one he had was to never return to Troy in the first place. The second one would have been to die when uh, Menelaus had the good grace to fight against him or or Paris should have had the good grace to die against Menelaus rather than to retreat with Aphrodite. And then this third opportunity would have been to just give Helen back. But no, 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 Paris, Paris, I suppose, thinks himself too prideful, has too much pride as a man, though he refuses to fight except for when his brother forces him to. And when we first saw him, he wasn't even wearing armor out on the battlefield. Uh, and also, of course, his argument to his brother who said that he was hateful and cajoling. Well, he said, well, fa well brother, don't, don't so quickly dismiss the gifts of Aphrodite, which means his way with women and his good looks. And so Paris is a constant disappointment to his people. And in fact, Hector's name isn't even mentioned during this council, which probably doesn't mean good things. Adias then, in the next morning, goes to visit the Argives. He gives them the terms while adding how much he hates Paris. Uh, lines 385 
to 397. And actually, I can read those to you now. Son of Atreus and you other great men of all the Achaeans, Priam and the rest of the haughty Trojans have bidden me give you, if this message be found to your pleasure and liking, the word of Alexandros, for whose sake this strife has arisen, indicating that all know why this fight is happening. All these, all those possessions that Alexandros carried in his hollow ships to Troy, and I wish that he had perished before then. That's an interpolation of Adias. He is willing to give all back and to add to these from his own goods. But the very wedded wife of glorious Menelaus, he says he will not give, though the Trojans would like would have him do it. They told me to give you this message also, if you are willing, to stop the sorrowful fighting until we can burn the bodies of our dead. We shall fight again afterwards until the divinity chooses between us and gives victory to one or the other. That was 385 to 397. So, three times at least he admits that the Trojans either understand that the fight has begun or the strife has arisen because of Paris. Adias personally said that he wishes Paris would die. And he also mentioned that the Trojans all wanted uh, Helen to be returned to the Achaeans. So he has indicated a strife that exists within his own people to match that potentially which exists within the Achaeans. Because what it, what it is that the Trojans now recognize is that Achilleus is no longer fighting for the Achaeans because he would have certainly been the one that would have fought against Hector and probably killed him this day had he been in the fight. So both camps have strife within them. However, it is Idias himself, representative of the camp of the Trojans, indicating several times, three times, that there is uh, strife or lack of harmony or discord uh, within and dissonance within the thoughts of the Trojans, even within the Trojan leadership. And so... Agamem or Diomedes immediately, not even waiting for Agamemnon, nor Menelaus, nor any other Achaean to uh, comment on the terms, Diomedes now shows his increasing prowess not only in battle but also in assembly. He immediately speaks up and denies the terms of Adias. Uh, now let none accept the possessions of Alexandros, nor take back Helen, one who is very simple can see it, that by this time the terms of death hang over the Trojans. He says, no, let's not take the, let's not accept this, not at all. And in fact, Diomedes will, during another cowardly moment of Agamemnon later in the fight, um, suggest that he and Sthenelus alone would stay and fight against the Trojans if people, if the Achaeans were to retreat. So, Agamemnon says to Adias, you heard the man and all the Achaeans agreed with him. And so for sure, we're going to keep fighting against you. We, we don't accept those terms. However, we do accept your terms about the burning of the dead bodies. And this is something he says, which is very interesting. He says, let Zeus, high thundering Lord of Hera, witness our pledges. So he says, let Zeus honor our negotiations, suggesting that if he is in any way dishonest, it will be Zeus who will punish him for his dishonesty. And so what happens? Well, on the next day, the men on the Achaean side and the Trojan side are setting out um, onto the battlefield and taking uh, bodies, cleaning the bodies off, putting them on wagons, taking them to funeral pyres, uh, pyres they're building with uh, wood, and they're burning the bodies, which is uh, something interesting that they did is that they would burn bodies and then they would often bury the bones. And so they would burn away the mortal part of you and so far as they could, and then bury the bones. Though you will also hear of um, ashes being preserved, because one beautiful story said about Achilleus and Patroclus is that their their ashes were intermingled together within um, an urn. So, cool. So, while the Achaeans are doing this, and the Trojans are doing the same, the Achaeans also build their wall, and they build it strong, and they build it with stakes in a pit outside of it. So it's a good, strong wall. While this is happening, Zeus 
is approached by Poseidon. And Poseidon um, gives away really the reason why this is happening in his first two lines of talking, 446 to 447. Father Zeus, is there any mortal left on the wide earth who will still declare to the immortals his mind and his purpose? So he suggests that the reason that he and the gods, he, Poseidon, as a ruler, command God and Zeus, and in fact, Carl Carini, the, far, the famous Hungarian classicist, makes the claim that Hades, Zeus, and um, Zeus are, or excuse me, Hades, Zeus, and Poseidon as god of sky, god of earth and sea, and god of underworld are part of a, a trinity that mean god of all things which exist, which I would say I gen in general buy. And when there's almost a conflict between Zeus and Poseidon, it'll be interesting to see what keeps them from fighting, um, as if as if they are the singular will of earth and heaven, and that all three gods need to be on the same page for all things to be good and balanced and harmonious. Which actually makes perfect sense, because if Poseidon is god of both earth as shaker of the earth and, uh, and sea, one understands that he's called earth shaker because he is the god of when the earth is disrupted in a way which is unusual or inappropriate. And so what is the disruption here? The dishonest agreement made between men. And so there's a disruption between the agreement and heaven, um, honest agreements on, on Olympus honored by Zeus and those made by men on earth. And so this disruption causes consternation to Zeus. And in fact, Poseidon says, we've, we gods, we've made an honest and just wall for the Trojans. And so what happens if this wall is allowed to be made and sacrifice was not made to the gods and it's made under the auspice of a dishonest agreement. People will lose faith in us. And Zeus says, no, 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 no. No, Poseidon, don't worry. You are maybe, maybe if this were insulting to a far less powerful god, I would expect this sort of behavior. But no, not to you. This is, this is not bad enough. Not at all. Not to befit your attention. However, though, if you feel bad about this, after the Trojans are destroyed, you may flood the wall of the Achaeans. You may, you may destroy the wall and make it not endure, suggesting that those agreements, as said earlier, which are made under dishonest terms, last for much less time than those which are, which are honestly made. And so, in fact, there will be a description later in the text of Poseidon with the help of Apollo flooding the wall of the Achaeans. We then, in the text... Well, recall that the beginning of Book 7 began with an agreement made between the gods, and it ends with an agreement made between the gods. But it also ends with the son of Jason, also called Shepherd of the People, because he took people onto the Argo, the first ship made by or inspired by Athena. Exploration, exploratory behavior. He was Shepherd of the People because he led them. What does a shepherd do? He leads the sheep. He leads them into new um, fruitful places or grass-filled places, places for them to eat to their heart's delight and safety and keeps lions away. And so Jason was a shepherd of the people in the generation before. In fact, Peleus, um, Telamon, the sons of the winds, as well as Heracles, all fought alongside him. And so his son, Unius, shows up with a thousand measures of wine. And so he's come from Lemnos. And so he's come essentially to bring gifts to Agamemnon and Menelaus and, um, 
and they also sell out the wine to other people. And so uh, it, what, what is demonstrated here is that is ba the basic idea that I shared very early on that many of the troops that the Achaeans would generally have access to are on raiding missions uh, uh, along the small islands and the small cities around Troy because of the large standing army. These individuals need to... They, they don't have access to crops or cattle, essentially, so they need to be constantly raiding other men in order to get their food. And in fact, during this night, because it has been such a good day full of battle, and during a one-on-one -on -one combat where the heroes uh, acted heroically, unlike in the fight between Menelaus and Paris, and um, especially unlike how that fight ended with a betrayal by the Trojans, the men, of course, are feasting tonight. But in the Iliad, things often go measure for measure. And so even though new wine approaches and the men have it bought and they, they dole it out amongst themselves and none is denied his proper fill, Zeus thunders all night indicating foreshadowing that there is a true storm coming, something well beyond the men's control and that things fearsome and great lurk in there. Futures. And so though they have cause for celebration early in the night, they have cause for green fear at the end of it. And so book seven ends. And so next time we'll talk a little bit about book eight, not too much. Mostly we'll, we'll mention that Zeus has decided that the, the subordinate gods cannot get his will done. And so he needs to step in himself and set things in motion, which will not make Hera or Athena particularly happy. And even actually Poseidon who will be directly disobedient when Zeus turns away, indicating that when one is not alert, that is when trouble happens, which will be a theme we cover in great detail during the Odyssey. So just keep the name Eurylochus in mind, because multiple times he should have had his head cut off, and in fact Odysseus will think about doing that, and he would have done well to do it, because he has a Thersites in his midst, but he doesn't kill him possibly because of a familial tie, and so conflicting duties can make even the great men make mistakes. And so this has been the Alexander Schmidt Podcast. Please keep listening, sharing, liking, calling in, and have a wonderful day. Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 026, addenda to episode 025, lecture on um, Homer's Iliad book, Seven. There were three points that I that I mentioned during the lecture where I was um, giving the exposition of the text to some degree. So I didn't have a point. I didn't have a moment to an analyze them in the way that I would like to. And so the three points are these. The first one is what the gold on the shield of Diomedes indicates, and how that and how that actually relates to the superiority of the Achaean forces as a, a superior awareness, one might say. And so the second point is. Agamemnon showing that he is improving as a leader through the fact that he not only listens to the people now and voices their will in listening to Diomedes, but also is listening to Nestor and listening to wisdom. So Nestor, we recall in book two, was unwilling to give his advice to Agamemnon due to fear of repercussions for being honest with him. And now Agamemnon is improving. And this is almost clearly due to the fact that since Achilleus is out of the fight, Agamemnon has to be a better leader and so has to grow as a leader. And then the third point I wanted to consider was the fact that the Achaeans betray the Trojan trust. Well, one thing I didn't mention in the actual lecture itself was that, well, the Trojans, well, I did mention it, but I didn't make this connection. The Trojans have betrayed the Achaeans 
as well through Pandaros' actions, through, through ending the amnesty during the first one-on-one -on -one combat between Menelaus and Paris. And so one betrayal seems to beget another. And in fact, the very nature of this fight at Troy is due to a betrayal of the Zinni, of the hospitality, because Paris came into the house of Menelaus and stole his wife from him. So there, there does seem to be a disturbance on, on the earth, an unfairness. And interesting, even from a naturalistic point of view, we understand that earthquakes come because of the shifting of tectonic plates, which means that there is a, a, a lack of symmetry between them, that one scrapes over the other, and that creates a, um, an earthquake, a, a lack of parity, a lack of fairness even. And so there's a, there's a perfect correlation between fairness and the notion of an earthquake occurring, a disharmony even amongst the plates of the earth. And so, back to the first point. So I mentioned that Diomedes' shield has seven folds of leather and one fold of bronze on the outside of it, or rather gold. And so, yes, bronze. Excuse me for saying gold. And if I said that during the lecture, I apologize for saying that incorrectly. The fact that it's bronze is the eighth layer rather than simply being seven levels layers of leather indicates that it has a special outside layer, one that is um, unique and more valuable than the other layers beneath it. And that is precisely the layer that offers the protection, which makes it so that Hector or the Trojan's spear has no chance of getting all the way through even the shield. And so what is the ultimate protective layer that the Achaeans have that keep the Trojans from defeating him? Well, that's the will of Athena behind them. That's their superior awareness and perception, which leads to their increased discipline and their better ordering of their ranks. And so what is it that keeps one safest? It is not simply the numbers that one has, nor the extraordinary fighters at one side, but also the, uh, the superior awareness that might come with one. And so it's not only the power of Ias or the power of the Achaeans that makes them strong, but the fact that they have the will of Athena on their side, or rather what Athena represents, which is wisdom or pragmatic intellectual action or the ability to implement superior strategy on the battlefield at some time, which I define as alertness or awareness appropriate to the situation, which makes them ultimately safer or superior in battle to the Trojans. So on to the next point. Agamemnon shows that he, his facility as a leader is increasing because when <clears throat> Idaeus comes to offer terms to him, for one, he allows Diomedes to speak forth, and Diomedes represents the will of the people because Diomedes is um, coming up as both fighter and uh, assemblyman, and, and so demonstrating his coming up nature, people are taking notice, and so he's a very popular individual right now. And so when he speaks up and says no, and the men cheer behind him, Agamemnon, like Hitler supposedly did in observing how crowds would react to that which he said, observes the crowd. He observes that which his people say. And recall, in book two, he attempted to give speech to his people where he didn't understand their hearts at all. He suggests that they run away. And in fact, that's immediately what they do, and to his horror and shock. And so who has to set the men back in order? Well, Odysseus, even against the evil, the, the evil speaking of Thersites. And you might even imagine that as an internal psychological conflict within Odysseus, that in the moment that foolish Agamemnon dispersed the troops, Odysseus might have had a moment too where he considered speaking evilly to the men, encouraging them back to their ships and saying, let's just go home. And so Agamemnon now listens to his people and invokes their will. The second thing that he does is that he is now listening to Nestor. Nestor is now voicing his opinions and Nestor has become so um, 
so able to speak his mind that he not only suggests an intelligent course of action in suggesting that the, the men go out and spend a day cleaning off the field of battle so that they don't have to endure mutual plague, which has been something that the Achaeans have had to deal with in the past. Well, he also shows uh, his crafty nature. So even though he's now older and can't fight in the same way that he did when he was young and fought against Eruthalion, what he can do now is still use his Odyssean-like cunningness. And so he suggests the dishonest agreement with the Trojans, where, where, whereby they make an agreement both to make an armistice, to send out men to clear the battlefield of bodies and blood, but also during that time the Achaeans will bolster their defenses. Also indicating that Nestor has some, some understanding that with Achilleus outside of the battle, some additional strategy may be necessary in order to ensure Achaean success. And the fact that Agamemnon is willing to listen to this perhaps indicates his increased wisdom too, at least his increased wisdom in listening to Nestor. Even though Nestor's advice will anger Poseidon, it will not lead to direct consequences to the Achaeans during the fight, so it, it turns out to be um, a sum game on their part. It is not simply a zero-sum game, and possibly the reason that Zeus allows this to occur is because of the Trojans happened to betray the Achaean armistice last time they called one, when um, Paris and Menelaus uh, had their one-on-one -on -one combat, and after Paris was absconded with by Aphrodite, Menelaus was still just lurking about the field. Pandaros took a shot at him, took his lucky shot at him, for which he would later die. And so, perhaps the reason that Zeus does not mind the fact that the Achaeans here are acting slightly dishonestly is that, for one, they're not directly betraying the trust of the Trojans by breaking their agreement, even though what they're doing is certainly not completely honest. And for two, perhaps it's because since the Trojans have betrayed the Achaeans before, not only once in taking the wife of uh, of Menelaus, uh, Helen, in the first place, but also uh, recently, uh, in the day before, uh, during the one-on-one -on -one combat, perhaps this is why Zeus, though troubled by the actions of the Achaeans, does not take direction action against direct action against them in this moment. And so, those were three points that I I thought that I didn't hash out very well. I didn't analyze very well during the episode because I was trying to get through the exposition. But now I'd, I'm glad that I got to add those in. And so, this has been episode. Uh, 026, Analysis Book 7, and three particular instances that we didn't have a chance to look into during the episode itself. All right, thank you very much. Please continue to share, subscribe, share, um, excuse me, like, and uh, call in anytime. Thank you.